I'm Brian Santo. I'm the editor-in-chief of EE Times. You're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 12th. Our stories this week. You might recall pilot Chesley Sullenberger. He became a hero a few years back for crash landing a disabled passenger airliner into New York's Hudson River with no loss of life. He recently appeared in front of Congress to testify about the crashes of the Boeing 737. We discuss his testimony and what it means for Boeing and for other engineering companies. We've got an on-site report from Semicon West, including a revised estimate of growth in the chip market in 2019, and guest commentators John Petty and Kathleen Marr have just concluded a major report on the workstation market, which has seen some profound changes over the years. Now what is a workstation? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's almost whatever you want to call it. We'll get back to John and Kathleen in a moment. First up, the Boeing 737 disaster. Earlier this year, there were two separate crashes involving the craft. There's an ongoing investigation into precisely how those crashes happened, and perhaps more importantly, why they happened. Indications are that Boeing was rushing to redesign the plane in such a manner that it could avoid new inspections by the Federal Aviation Administration. Congress recently held hearings to look further into the matter. The testimony by Chesley Sullenberger during those hearings was particularly dramatic. Editor George Leopold has been following the story for EE Times. So George, tell me what the significance of Sullenberger testifying. Well, the House Transportation Aviation Subcommittee held this hearing on, I think it was on July 19th, and the the idea was to bring in the stakeholders, meaning the people who have to fly the aircraft, the, uh, I think, even flight attendants, and I think they even had some passengers. But obviously, uh, Chesley Sully Sullenberger is, is, you know, he's beloved in this country. He's the guy who survived an unprecedented loss of two engines, and he put down his airplane on the Hudson River and saved 155 people, 154 counting himself. They all walked away. So he's got some street cred, or maybe we should say sky cred. Uh, But his testimony was damning. And he revealed during his testimony to the subcommittee that he has flown the 737 MAX simulator. Mm. He flew the, the two flight profiles of the Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines crashes, Mm -hmm. and he testified that he could see by the conflicting warnings he was getting from the uh, angle of attack sensor, this what looks like a single point of failure, that the the pilots could have been very confused, didn't have enough time, and didn't have enough altitude to pull this thing out of, uh, of this scenario. So this is something that's new to me. I was unaware that it's possible to record what happened in a flight and then simulate the actual flight. The, the fact that Sullenberger was actually able to put himself in a simulation of what actually happened with the two down jets. Well, I think, you know, if they find the black box recorders, they probably have a sufficient amount of, of telemetry that they can take it to a simulator and get pretty close to what the pilots saw and felt. And what he says they saw and felt was... Uh, one warning called a stick shaker saying, you're going too slow, you're going to stall. And simultaneously, another contradictory warning, a clacker saying too fast, too fast. If anybody saw the movie, Sully, you know, you get a sense of you know the warnings that are going on and you got to figure out really fast what's going on with your aircraft and what are you going to do to get it back to the runway. 
Well, I've got to imagine that even even when you're trained, that's got to be terrifying when you're getting conflicting alarms. Yeah, he. I mean, he even noted he even knew what was coming, and he still couldn't pull out of this death dive that both these aircraft were in. Wow, wow, that's crazy. So uh, between Sullenberger's testimony and you know the time elapsed in between then and now, it's been I don't know uh, ten days or so. Has the uh, story moved forward? Any any have we learned anything new about uh, the MCAS system or what's going on with the investigation into Boeing? Yeah, the latest is they've come up in simulations with what looks like a hardware problem, uh, a processor problem. And as I understand it, what they were trying to do is basically have the software activate the switches in the flight control system. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to introduce a a processor into this system to make the computer faster. And according to the reports I've seen, uh, this hasn't been working too well, and it looks now like it's another problem with MCAS. The other thing that I've heard, I've not been able to confirm, is that Boeing may have outsourced the uh, the development of the MCAS system overseas, uh, which seems a strange thing to do. Again, Sully Sullenberger said the people running these programs ought to be pilots, so they understand you know what these systems have to do when you're when you're pitching a, a stabilizers up and down, and you know what that does to an airplane that's that's climbing uh, to to cruising altitudes. So, uh, and then the other thing I'd point out is that uh, the the Seattle Times has done great coverage on this, and they had uh, a, a, an inside account of uh, how this all came about, how the how MCAS came to be. And I linked to it in in our story and uh, recommended to uh, readers and and people I've the sources we talked to have also recommended it highly. Fantastic. So this is Boeing. This is a very specific uh, event, but the problem of uh, a lack of controls in the in the manufacturing process, lack of foresight in the manufacturing process, perhaps the pressure on a company to get something out before it's fully baked, that's not uncommon. Are there any consequences uh, for electronics companies or other industrial companies at large coming out of this? Well, I think, and and if it happens, it'll be a good thing. I think there'll be closer scrutiny of how the components are manufactured, uh, how they're how they're installed. I mean, something else has cropped up in the last week or so where Boeing's got problems at their seven eight seven Dreamliner factory in South Carolina, where they found all kinds of shoddy manufacturing and it's, you know very simple things like tie downs so that bolts won't pop out, and. Uh, Maybe Boeing, as an attempt to save itself, moves some of its manufacturing back to Renton, Washington, so they can keep a closer eye on these workflows. So that's that's one possible outcome. And, you know, the, I guess the other thing is, will this aircraft ever be recertified to fly? And that's, at this point, it's not clear it will. And I'm not sure a lot of passengers will want to fly on it. <laughs> you know, speaking as a potential passenger, yeah, that's a consideration, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know there are websites that are they're going to play up the fact that your equipment is a 737 MAX. Do you still want to make this reservation? So that down the line, that's going to hit them. Wow, crazy. Well, George, thanks for uh, being here with us this week. Good to be back with you, Brian. Take care. Semicon West is the annual conference held by semiconductor factory equipment suppliers. 
EE Times editors Rick Merritt and Dylan McGrath were at the show, and they filed this report from the conference hall. Hi, this is Dylan McGrath along with Rick Merritt. We're here at the Semicon West in San Francisco this year. Rick, how are you? I'm doing great. Now, you've been here for 20 years. What, what's changed? Well, I was just thinking the show has changed quite a bit. It's gone from a big exhibition to a much smaller exhibition. And I've spent much of my time in the AI design forums. You know, there's just a lot more content here than there used to be. A lot more presentations uh, and, and less focus on what's going on on the show floor. But you did walk the show floor. What did you see out there? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's really busy. There's all those small and medium companies from the capital equipment uh, sector, uh, as you well know, the big, the small, and the medium ones, the valves and tubes and everything. But as you know, it's better than anybody. How's that sector really doing right now? I mean, it looks like a party on the show floor, but how are they really doing? Well, it's not a party, as you know. So uh, I spent a lot of time in presentations yesterday with analysts, and yeah, things are not looking good. I think everyone understands that. What I took away from yesterday was things are actually looking worse than people thought they were, especially at the start of the year. There was some expectation that the market for chips might be down a little bit. Now it's looking like 10% plus. It's going to contract. Um, and the latest estimate is that the equipment market is going to contract by 18%. So, wow. you know, the, the drop in memory chip prices, everyone saw that coming. So, but it's going to, it looks like this is going to be a very significant downturn. Yeah. It's, it's the memory drop, it's the data center pullback because yep. they overspent the last two yep. years, and it's also the, the whole trade war going on. That doesn't help. Although people are still kind of reluctant to talk a lot about the trade war. Um, it's kind of the elephant in the room. Nobody knows what's going to happen with that, right? And maybe the From big technology issue is, you know, we debated whether or not Moore's Law is ending. It doesn't matter. But the point is CMOS scaling is slowing and getting expensive. So we're about to, maybe we're not hitting a wall, but we're really coming to a slowdown in a big way. So what's the big hope for this? Yeah, well, that's one of the big takeaways that I got from the, this morning at the AI Design Forum is uh, whether or not Moore's Law is truly dead, it is no longer going to drive the industry as it once has. And uh, Gary Dickerson, the CEO of Applied Materials, you know, said, we can't continue to do things as we've done them before. So there are heterogeneous architectures. There's new materials, new uh, device structures. I mean, you name it, they're looking at everything. They're looking at how they can collaborate to build things a lot faster than they used to. Yeah, and the good news is, People from Google get up and say, look, we've just built three generations of AI accelerators. We've got whole buildings with our own chips. Uh, we need the next generation faster. Uh, guys, you need to develop some new transistors or something. Mm -hmm. So here's the guys with the big pockets that look like the pole vault. So these guys get over Moore's Law uh, ending and get onto whatever the next thing might be. Yeah, and they've got the money, as you say, that people will do what they want. So that's, that's the good news. So there's a short take from Semicon West. John Petty and Kathleen Marr are principals at John Petty Research. They recently concluded a massive study on the workstation market, examining how workstations have evolved over the years and how they're being used today. Hi, John. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the uh, history of workstations because they had a very clear-cut beginning, but it's gotten a little muddier as time's gone along. Well, it was clear-cut in that the workstations were so dramatically differentiated. They had risk processors, they had custom graphics, they had Unix operating system. They were big, they were expensive, and they didn't sell a lot of them. 
No, and then and then came along uh, the x86, and then uh, professional versions of operating systems from Windows, and we got the famous Wintel Xs. Mm-hmm. It did accomplish moving uh, or killing the traditional workstation market and bringing along this whole new class of computers. Uh, yeah. Something between PCs and workstations. Yeah, because um, they figured out how to apply commercial and consumer uh, processors, which were being made in huge volumes, and so they were less expensive. And and once they crossed that threshold, then it was, you know, forget about the big guys the way they were. And it, and the transition was really tough for a lot of companies. There's a lot of companies that just don't exist anymore because they couldn't make the transition. Well, you know, and what's amazing is in, in the work we've been doing recently, we're seeing that that transition is really still going on. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's right. So now what is a workstation? Oh, huh, I don't know. <laughs> it's almost whatever you want to call it. Um, we have multiple processor choices now. Um, we have the traditional x86, and that comes in two flavors, which is Core i something, 3579, or it comes in a Xeon, and then AMD has their Epic. So uh, there's, you know, processor choices like crazy. We're concerned about memory size, how much of a model we can get stuck into large memory. There's a question about, do you need error correcting memory or not? Yes or no? It's it's a mixed answer. There's no solid answer on that. Um, security, yes or no again. Uh, rugged construction, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, so it's there's a very big gray line, if you will, between workstation users who need everything that a traditional workstation would have versus those who can take an off-the-shelf PC. What I found is I did some research just poking around the, the relationship between the users and the applications. So mm-hmm. what, do, what do CAD users gravitate towards and what do game developers gravitate towards? Yeah. And, uh, and there's big differences there. But uh, uh, it was surprising to realize that still most professional applications aren't threaded for multi-threaded processors. So it tends to be you don't want the super-duper workstation, multi-core workstation processor. You, you want to gravitate towards something faster and all those kinds of considerations. And a lot of users are skeptical of uh, the need for a workstation graphics board versus a ga- great gamer board. Well, and also there's the discussion about error correcting memory. That's one of the distinguishing features of a workstation, uh, by our definition of a workstation, mm-hmm. is that it has error correcting memory. Well, you can only get error correcting memory if you use a Xeon processor. You can't get that with a consumer processor. Or an Epic processor. Right? Or an Epic, yeah. yeah. So there's that. And then the other question that keeps coming up is, do you need application certification or not? And so... I contend that you know serious workstation users do, but there's a whole bunch of people who don't care. In some cases of users, I think I've seen it a lot in the CAD market, is that they don't hold their vendors necessarily in such high regard. So no. they're not so sure, you know, what good certification is. And uh, they've been doing it for years. So mm-hmm. it's like, I've gotten by so far. Yeah, one of the things that we've found is that uh, people are buying machines that are labeled workstation but don't have any of the uh, hardware that should be in a workstation. You did that survey recently that I thought was so interesting. Uh, we asked people, what do they think should be in a workstation? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did we find out? They weren't so sure. What we found out was that if you don't know what's in a workstation, you don't need one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that sums it up pretty well, John. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Everybody go out and get a workstation. <laughs>
And now for this week's Blasts from the Past. On July 8, 1957, Control Data Corporation was founded. For years, CDC built the fastest supercomputers in the world. On July 9, 1982, Disney released Tron. It was the first major motion picture to take place in what we would now call virtual reality. On July 11, 1976, the company K&E made the last mass-produced slide rule, which it presented to the Smithsonian Institution. On July 10, 1962, Britain, France, and the United States launched the Telstar Communications Satellite into space. The orbiting of the satellite inspired a British group to record an instrumental number in its honor. It was the second British single to reach number one in the U.S., and it seems to have been the first engineering-inspired song to top the charts ever. Here's the Tornadoes with Telstar. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending July 12th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found at eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to. We'll be back next Friday with the next episode of The Weekly Briefing on EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santos.